0: Hello, I'm Sam Clements, and welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest, this is a podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime and is entirely curated by guests on this podcast. Today, we are joined by social media lead for Charity Shelter, script reader, and fellow podcaster, Becky Brinoff from the And Then What podcast. Hi, Becky. Hi, Sam. What an intro!
1: I know, it's quite a lengthy one, I'm sorry. I've, I do a lot of
0: things. You are <laughs> a, such a busy person. I'm quite busy. <laughs> and we are thrilled to have you on this podcast. I'm very thrilled to
1: be on this podcast. Thanks for inviting me.
0: You are also the first guest from my hometown and your yes. hometown, Bristol. Hello,
1: how are you doing? All right. All right.
0: <laughs> so we can just completely go into West Country slang now.
1: Yes, we're going to be that one bit in hot fuzz where no one understands anything that we're saying, which should be good. I enjoy
0: it. More in an angle. <laughs> I love that film. <laughs> Sadly, it's not ninety minutes or less so we cannot talk about it
1: no we're not going to talk about any films that are over 90 minutes at all
0: in theory no because you have pre-selected a film i have before we get to the film okay let's do let's talk a little bit about how you chose that film so i guess when you normally choose a film does running time come into it at all
1: um, not massively. So I used to work in film a lot more than I do now. Obviously, I'm sort of dipping my toe back into it with script reading, which is a lot of fun. Nowadays, when I do get a chance to see a film, it's more about am I guaranteed to have a very good romp, good time? Is it going to be worth the the money and the effort? And to be honest, there are a lot of long running times out of there. If it's 90 minutes or less, that is obviously a bonus. And I, when when I'm script reading, if I receive a script that is over 90 pages, I tend to think <laughs> that's probably going to be my first note in pace. Is like, there's probably some fat you can trim here because you can tell any story in 90 minutes. I'm convinced of this. So it's not a huge factor when I'm picking a film to watch, but it's definitely a factor when I'm reviewing a film
0: in script form. <laughs> that's that's. I've never. We've not really on this podcast got into the sort of script element mm. of of producing, making a film like this. But it must be nice when you see that the wedge of paper is a little bit. Thinner. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: Definitely. If if it's not in three figures on the uh, in the in the page count, then I'm very happy.
0: So for this podcast, we've asked you to choose just one film. Mm-hmm. How did you approach this task, and how did you settle on on the film you've chosen?
1: Well, Sam, I began by really testing your patience. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I grasped the concept of the of the ninety minutes or less film festival, but I didn't entirely stick to it to begin with. So I came to you with a couple of suggestions, like one of my favourite films, Grabbers, mm-hmm. which is brilliant creature feature, which is at 95. Four minutes. And then I also suggested Mean Girls at 93 minutes. And you were very kind <laughs> and said, Great bangers, absolute bangers of films. But I need to be really anal about this. And so, okay, fine. And then I found three. One was Toy Story, which has been reviewed on here already. What We Do in the Shadows is only 87 minutes. Ah, and I that's thought, a that's good that's tip. that's a good one. But I decided to go with a little revenge thriller, Blue Ruin, <laughs> which is bang on 90. Unless you just go by script and discount the credits and then it's only 86 minutes.
0: I didn't even think mm. about the credits. No <laughs> one's made the argument yet. Um, like, well, actually, it's 90 if you take off the credits. <laughs> but I guess for the film festival, we would exactly. have to show the credits because we would want the gaffers to get you know, exactly. they just desserts. <laughs> well, Blue Ruin is an absolutely banging choice. According to the back of the DVD, Dwight Evans is a mysterious outsider whose quiet life on the margins is turned upside down when he returns to his childhood home to carry out an act of vengeance proving himself an amateur assassin he winds up in a brutal fight to protect his estranged family the revenge thriller of the year the evening standard intelligent and thrilling recalls the dark wit of the cohen's total film what a what a synopsis at this point we should probably point out there will be spoilers for the film blue ruin
1: yeah i was trying to write notes that didn't spoil anything in it but it's quite hard to talk about this and not give things away because so much happens so early on but yeah i mean
0: well i think we we want to get under the hood of this film and mm-hmm. uh, listeners if you haven't seen the film yet it is readily available on streaming platforms mm-hmm. so pause the podcast have a watch it's 90 minutes or less. so becky why blue ruin
1: so i've listened to the episodes of this podcast that have gone out already and their films, so like the producers and Toy Story and their films I think a lot of people will have already seen. Mm. Blue Ruin came out about five years ago in the middle of an unexpectedly very hot May weekend for about two minutes (laughs) and and I don't think as many people who should have seen it did go and see it so I thought a good opportunity to talk about this because I was just in love with this film. I was like, no, don't be in the sun. Be in a dark room (laughs) watching this really like graphic revenge thriller but I just, I love, I feel like this is a perfect perfectly structured script it's a very very good film it does a lot with very very little the the production story behind it is really interesting it's just a very taut thriller there's no fat on it whatsoever and Mm. i think if you're looking for perfect storytelling this is it this is a great example i think every film course should show it
0: that's uh, quite an endorsement, considering uh, one of your one of your the many hats you wear. <laughs> it's also quite untraditional, though. So it is a. Mm. I mean, the back of the box says "Revenge thriller." Revenge thriller. Yeah. The revenge happens very early in the narrative. Yeah. It's bang and then on it's sort the twenty-minute like mark. The outcome of a revenge thriller, almost.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Basically, the whole third act is like about eighty minutes worth. Of the film. It's really very good. There's so many different options you could have gone with this story, I suppose. And what I really like about it is that it does a lot of stuff that you just It's like a series of things that you just wouldn't expect. It kind of goes against what most cinema tells us is going to happen, and uh, yeah. So I mean, how how early should we start spoiling things? I don't know.
0: I mean, we could we can spoil things from the get go. We put the spoiler warning up. We're in spoilerville right now. (laughs) Okay. So
1: we've got we've got Dwight, who's our homeless drifter, and then he. I love I love the opening so much. It does so like the the first act is. Pretty much wordless except Mm. for this lovely police officer who comes and picks Dwight up who's sleeping in a car. But she
0: mostly talks at him. Yeah. It's not really a conversation, which is quite nice.
1: Yeah, he says very little. And there's a point he makes later on where he says, Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm not used to talking this much, and it's just oh he's so alone. She brings him into the station and just reassures him, like, You're not in trouble, don't worry, I'll tell you when you get there. And she just wants him to be somewhere safe when he finds out that the the man who killed his parents has been released from prison. And this, this happened 20 years ago. And it's obviously deeply affected him because he's kind of on the fringes of society now. From the zero minute mark to the 20 minute mark, a shitload happens. Mm. And he, he you know, he finds out that the killer is on the loose. Well, not on the loose. But, you know, he's been released. Mm. He goes about tooling up and then he encounters the killer and then he kills him. <laughs> and then yeah. and then you're into the meat of the movie and you're like, oh, Usually this would happen at like the sixty minute mark. <laughs> this
0: is It's so economical in terms yeah. of you mentioned it is a it's an independent film, yeah. it's very low budget, and you feel like everything they've they've really like they've done all the pre production. Mm-hmm. So when they film they're not wasting any time or money. No. So we need to hook people. And you think like I guess how independent films get distributed, they go to film festivals. Mm-hmm. They've made the first twenty minutes so gripping Ugh. you could not turn this off if you're a film festival programmer. no, no. It's very smart. I think
1: with Dwight, he's just He's such a brilliantly realized character it's such a tiny performance by uh, Macon Blair who and it's uh, yeah it's very tiny very kind of restrained and he's not you know you look at other revenge kind of stories and he like he's not a Neo Montoya no. he's not <laughs> he is he's not cool he's also not performatively uncool mm. he's just I think he reacts and and Uh, responds to everything that happens to him kind of just like how you and i would (laughs) he's i'm not i'm not saying that you wouldn't be a very good killer sam but i mean he's pretty inept i feel like i would be pretty inept everything that could possibly go wrong for him does go wrong for him Mm. he's not cold-blooded by by any stretch he's he's deeply broken and and it's very emotional series of events for him there's like one particular moment when he he does encounter the the man who killed his parents and he you see it affect him very deeply emotionally like he he's hiding in the bathroom Mm. of he's like gone into the lion's den essentially with with this man and his entire family he's hiding in the bathroom he's got the knife other people come into the bathroom and you see it it suddenly impacts him that that emotion he's terrified Mm. and you just think yeah i would be too (laughs) it's it's just it's so good
0: that's part of the uh, challenge when crafting this character mm. in this film. It's a revenge thriller where you follow the person who's taking revenge yeah but you have to be sympathetic towards this man who basically wants to kill another man mm-hmm. and macon blair plays it so well he's got these very emotive eyes oh, and yeah. he's got this beautifully expressive face even though for the first well, like first third of the film it's hidden by this giant beard <laughs> yeah. because he's been living in his car for so long mm-hmm. but he he still his eyes can like punch above the fuzz oh. and 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 that's that's all you need in that scene when the killing happens the camera just like gets this really great shot of his face mm-hmm. and you can see deep into his eyes how like Torn, he is about what he's done.
1: Yeah, it's awful. He's not, you know, he's not a natural born killer by any no. sense. <laughs> he's very smart. He's savvy. He knows how to survive. He really doesn't know how to kill. <laughs>
0: no. there's a great scene just before that where he he steals a gun with the lock still on, and he's trying yes. to break the lock off, and he ends up just breaking the whole gun.
1: It's just, it's just everything that could possibly go wrong, does, and you just think, yeah, God, if I had to try and kill someone, it's probably how it would go for me as well. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of what makes it. It's, it's really brutal and graphic throughout the whole film but it's also weirdly very funny yeah. and i know people have made the coen bro- brothers reference quite a lot but i think it's it kind of sits a little bit separate from coen brothers in that way i think the coen brothers kind of humor is is a little bit performative in that sense whereas this is just it's kind of purely coincidental mm. like the bit where it's later on in the film so he's changed his appearance by this point and do you feel when he shaves his um beard off and cuts his hair he looks a bit like nathan
0: lane <laughs> definitely see, to, to bring it back to the producers. Would have loved see to have seen Nathan Lane. Nathan Lane. <laughs> yes, he's got that, I guess you don't normally see faces like his in terms no. of the actors. Because he's like a slightly older guy. He'd never be the lead, but he's got this great face. He yeah. might be in like a Steve Buscemi type role. Yes. Like the supporting like character, character. actor. <laughs> but Macon Blair's not really done that in his career. And it's quite bold that he had been in a couple of films before this. Another film with director Jeremy Sonia Because they're best friends mm-hmm. and have made films together all their lives. But it, they said in the making of this film, he was always going to be the lead, but he's not a lead. No. So they had to write the film around that. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's quite inept because if you cast, I don't know, like a more typical star, a Bruce Willis or something sure. in this, he would be able to get the, the lock off the gun. <laughs> he wouldn't feel regret when he kills the guy. But it's like, no, we're writing, Bacon is going to be in it. So I'm going to, knowing he's in it, I can make this character a bit more inept, a bit more of an everyman yeah. who's sort of quite torn and it's so smart and that's that's one of the best-selling points of this film then ironically the the lack of star power <laughs> <laughs> suits this film so well but
1: what star power it does have mm. yeah the they've got two sort of little surprise cameos that i really enjoy one being devin Rattray, who i think well kids pe- people are age, kids are age people are age, uh remember as buzz McAllister from home alone so he plays like the third act hero i guess mm. essentially ben gaffney and he, who's the guy you really want on your side when you're in a jam. Yes. <laughs> he's mm-hmm. amazing. And I find competence incredibly attractive. I was very attractive to, to Ben Gaffney. And um, and then you've got a Brady Bunch member in there. So you remember Jan Brady? Eve Plum? She's like one of the members of the family. The fact that I think Macon has... He's just like some rando that you, you wouldn't pay any attention to down the street. Mm. It just... It really brings a lot more to the role and just makes him a lot more of an interesting character so a lot happens to to poor dwight there's one bit where he gets shot with a crossbow he's just like how could this day get any worse Mm. (laughs) and he's trying to handle that so he goes into a shop and just buys some you know some thread some some stuff a lot of rubbing alcohol he's buying some stuff at the till and he hands over money it's got blood on it and the cash (laughs) the cashier looks at him just like, oh Jesus. And <laughs> you think in any other film, maybe with any other actor, there would be some kind of quip or some kind of excuse. And he just looks at me and goes, I, yep, <laughs> just walks out. <laughs> just, probably, I just go forward with laughter. I forgot how funny that bit was. And it's just, you just think. Yeah, that shouldn't be... It's incredibly dark and it's that kind of graveside humour which I really, really enjoy in this sort of thing. Everyone go watch it. I think essentially what I'm trying to say.
0: (laughs) Because it was marketed as a thriller and it sort of is to a point but it it does... It knows the genre so well it knows where it can take a left turn which will play with the audience's expectations like someone being wounded and then not being able to deal with it. <laughs> <Dealing> <laughs> Even though they terribly. do try. So the scene after that is him actually trying to remove the arrow uh, from Whoa. his leg, which is so gross. Yeah. The, the, the gore in this film. Jeremy Sonia's so previous film was called Murder Party. <laughs> and... I mean, just that title alone lets you know that this is someone who is good with gore. And they, they use lots of prosthetics and models. Yeah. And that is the most graphic thing. It, the arrow sticking out of his leg oh, and, and the blood like dripping out. out.
1: Well, yeah, it's so well done. Right, When you watch the behind the scenes and you see how they put that all together, it's, oh, this is fine. But when you're in the moment and you're watching it for the first time, it mm. is a little bit like just watching through your fingers and just, yeah.
0: I remember that from the cinema because we, I remember I worked on the release of this film and I was like, like, it's quite funny. And then the gore happened. I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a 15, guys. Guys, it's a 15. I forgot
1: it's a 15. I <laughs> think, Jesus. 15-year-olds shouldn't want to watch this. No, they should. They should. No, they shouldn't. Should they? I'm conflicted. I killed them. I killed them.
2: I guess, God, Dwight I thought he'd kill me first.
0: Just before we get to the point where he does the he gets the arrow wound when he's defending a house. Yes. Um, we meet his sister. So you say the first 20 minutes or so is mm. pretty much dialogue free. Yeah. But his sister is played by Amy Hargreaves yes. and that's the first proper conversation mm-hmm. we get. And there's lots of backstory and I was wondering as someone who reads a lot of scripts yeah. how do you feel about sort of like kind of saving up a lot of information for one conversation like Mm. that because it's very heavy on backstory at that point in the film yeah
1: I think it earns it I think in that instance like yeah the first 20 minutes it's it assumes that you are smart enough to follow what is going on and just pick up the clues that it like you know it's it's a very cliche thing to say but it does a really good job of showing and not telling which is like one of my usual notes on scripts is like stop telling me this just show me and I think it's it, it just it works really well you've got two very very good performances you got, and just they they do manage to squeeze quite a lot in in that very short conversation and what i really like is that they don't just use that conversation to give you a lot of backstory that would be quite hard to tell in any, any other way like you've picked up a lot already so far but you kind of need that extra information to drive you through the rest of the story mm. but they use it in a fantastic way to like the sound design on that scene is really interesting in a way it really builds up the tension so all their silences in the conversation while they are explaining some more of the backstory behind things. You've got all these cars that are kind of going past in in the quiet moments and they make a really, it's, it's almost very pointed that each sentence is sort of punctuated by a car going by and you're like, oh God, they're not safe. Someone is mm. going to come and get them. <laughs> and then the conversation ends with him, him realising, because he's been checking the news, there's no, no one has like called the police about it, mm. so I think I think it works because the, the conversation serves more than one function. It's one give us a bit of backstory, but also build up that additional tension and then drive the story forward even more. So I think in th- in those instances, yeah, that really works. It just earns it.
0: I mean, like a lot of American genre films, it's a big scene in a diner, and it's a very busy diner, and they're talking about. I mean, he says, oh, "I killed him." And it's so it's so busy. I was just thinking, you've just admitted that to the whole restaurant, Dwight. Uh, yeah. And then and I'm like, and then you're thinking in films, there's always, you know, we can hear it, but in the reality of the film, maybe other customers can't hear what they're saying. But then a guy leans over and says, <laughs> "Can I get a ketchup?" During this really serious conversation, you're like, "Oh no, no, people can hear what he's saying in this universe."
1: It's, again, it's another like weirdly funny thing, but something that would happen in this very mm. unusual, bizarre situation yeah probably somebody probably would lean over and be like can i get a little bit of red sauce <laughs> 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 but i really enjoy it. yeah it's just so so well done it's it's what i i love in scripts when you've got a funny moment that's then punctuated with something quite serious so you've got this this very intensely emotional scene between the two of them where they're it's like the first time they've seen each other in a very long time and and you know the last time they saw each other probably was around the death of their parents, mm. and then you've got this bizarrely humorous moment, and then Dwight realizing, "Oh crap, the kids are in danger," so,
0: and him yeah. announcing his arrival by a postcard, and his sister pointing out that postcards take longer to yeah. arrive than regular mail, so she hasn't she wasn't no expecting to see him. <laughs> <laughs> What did you think of that scene where the boot is finally open, Dwight (sighs) finally has his gun and he's ready to do the big sort of confession scene?
1: It's wonderful. So this is, again, for script fans, this is our first climax of the film where we answer the first question, what's he going to do about the guy in the boot? It's just done incredibly well. So this follows... Ben Gaffney, our lovely Devon Ratray, very Mr. Competent, whom I love. Mm-hmm. And this is where Dwight has managed to finally get hold of a firearm and he is going to now confront man in boot. Mm. The guy in the boot is a lot more savvy. <laughs> it feels like he's kind of done this before. <laughs> he knows what he's doing. You feel like if, if the film had been in his hands things would have been over in 20 minutes. But obviously Dwight is just, he's got the gun, so obviously he has the power. And the good point the guy in the boot makes is that, you know, the, the guy with the gun gets to tell the truth. And so I should have probably explain the guy in the boot. So he is the brother of the man who killed Dwight's parents. And it's just become this sort of... And th- I've, I've, This meeting actually serves another really great function is that it tells us a bit more backstory that we hadn't realised before, that, another massive spoiler, the killer didn't do it. It was the Wade senior yeah who had cancer yes so the son took the fall and went to prison and there was an affair going on between the dad and and dwight's no dwight's dad and the killer's mum. Yes. Yes, <laughs>
0: that's it. <laughs>
1: Basically, we, the more you go back, you realize that as the film goes on, it's this quite sort of Shakespearean kind of backdrop, mm. which I love. It's great because it starts at such a small film, and then the more and more you go, it just it, it spirals into this like really interesting, yeah I love I love bits of writing like that.
2: You came to my sister's house. Were you coming for me or for her? Look man. You. Why don't you just call the police? And send me to jail? Same as you. Just keeping it in house.
1: So we've got this really great kind of play with status with the the guy in the boot and Dwight. Teddy, Teddy's his Teddy. name. That's it. Yeah, and uh, he does a really clever thing with pretending to make a phone call, when he's not really making a phone call. And he's just a lot smarter. He really outwits Dwight. But luckily, Dwight has has some backup, Mister Competent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's such a good moment when you hear you hear it before you see it. It's you hear the bullet flying through the air. Mm. And which confuses the two the two of them. And then you see Mr. Competent appear in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> He's like, we've had to wait for him to, to wait for Teddy to try and like have intent to shoot Dwight because yes. he manages to get the gun off him and he was able to shoot him and that's another if you would watched the making of the film that's a really great moment where you see how they achieve the prosthetics on that because it's pretty effing gross when mm. <laughs> so you see just half of his face fly off into the grass basically
0: the camera's focused on the guy with the gun yeah. he's threatening to shoot the guy yeah. and it's it couldn't be you're all looking at his face because he's talking and then half of it flies off <laughs>
2: A it's lot of the odd, violence
0: in the film is very sort of quick but very what I assume is realistic mm. but it doesn't really like you know like it doesn't it doesn't focus on it too much doesn't linger or sort of celebrate it it's like violence is violent and it's gory yeah but it also happens so quick mm-hmm. and every sort of murder or, or bit of um, uh, aggression is over so quickly yeah uh, but it's all about the fallout yes uh, from that uh, before and after
1: yeah just everything sort of escalates like it I mean it could very, very well have been a very good tight short film mm. ending with you know the first kill but you know violence begets violence and so on and so forth and they make a really good I think it's like later on when we get to the showdown and Dwight says you know I make that two of your guys two of my guys I mean, we could just keep going. And well, yeah, they
0: do. <laughs> <laughs> well, because of the phone call, he realizes that the family of the killer now know uh-huh. that he's after them and what's yes. happened. So he now has to go and intercept a message or the family. Yeah. And and that's sort of the deferred act of the film is uh-huh. him leaving Buzz from home alone. And he's got a corpse in his trunk now. <laughs>
1: oh, I know. It's just it's as if it couldn't get worse. <laughs>
0: There's also a really important line in that sort of middle bit of the film where mm. I think it's Buzz who says, you know, if you're holding the gun, don't make A speech, um, yeah, because that will be your downfall. And then there's the payoff later (sighs) in the (laughs) film. How do you feel about sort of planting lines uh, earlier in the script and Mm -hmm. then like it's like the Chekhov's gun thing, I guess. Yeah. Um, How do you feel about that when you see that in in the screenplay?
1: I love a payoff. It's when when I'm going through scripts, like I'll if I sense a payoff coming. I'll sort of make a little note that this better be bloody paid off later. And if it does, and it's just like a little, ee, little squeal <laughs> moment for an audience. I think that's good because it's just such a satisfying moment. One, it makes an audience member feel really clever. Mm. And two, it's just good
0: storytelling.
1: It's just, I really like that.
0: So after this, we've had a bit of an action scene. There's been a, a gunshot, uh-huh. a violent wound. <laughs> You're like, okay, so this is, the film is going into its, all guns blazing into the third act. <sighs> and Dwight shows up to the family of, of the killer's home. Mm. And they're not there. There's and no they're not there home. for... At least two days (laughs) so the film shows you how this guy's got his timing so wrong (laughs) and he's just killing time in their house he's broken in he has he has you know this is like probably one of the the things that actually works out for him he's sweeps the house Mm. got rid of all the guns yeah well, has he? Oh, has um, we? But he's got a plan, and he's even made a little fort out of armchairs and, <laughs> and dining room fort. tables. So he's like, he thinks he's as ready as he possibly can be. Mm-hmm. But then the film just shows you killing time in their house, yeah. which again I've never really seen in a revenge thriller. Like it really yeah. makes you, it makes you feel the gap between each incident. Mm-hmm. Um, so when things do happen, I think it feels even more psychologically. It feels like it's even quicker than it yeah. actually is.
1: It's a wonderful tension builder. It's that. Again, to make a, a sort of very lazy comparison, but it's the a kind of Hitchcockian sort of thing where you know you you're told from the very beginning this is going to happen, and then it takes a long time to get you there, and because you know it's happening, you're like just everything is very tense all the time. So you know you know the showdown is going to happen. You know the family is aware that he's taken out now two of their guys mm. and uh, and they're coming and they're tooled up and they know how to use a gun and he does not and he's the most inept killer in the world so I, I love that drawn out sequence and i even love little touches like he wants to leave a message on the machine because he becomes aware that they they ring the answer machine to check for any messages from mm. when they're not there he attempts to leave a message but he stood too close to the machine <laughs> So then he has to go outside because it makes a horrible bit of feedback, and even then that just highlights. Oh god, he's just he's going to mess this up completely, isn't he? He mm. y- does towards the end as well, and then yeah, when they have the final showdown, it's just such a great payoff. And even then, even when they're in the house and he's he's drawing out his moment to kind of reveal himself, even that is just like oh, it's mm-hmm. such another great tension builder. Yeah, it just it and for a film that's so taut and again like has no fat on it whatsoever it it still manages to find time to give you those long drawn out moments it's just so well done I love it
0: he knows that by engaging with the family it will probably result in him being killed as well mm-hmm. and he even says that to his sister like yeah. I don't think I'm going to be able to come out of this but us as audience members we're like no he's the protagonist he'll be absolutely <laughs> he'll be <okay."> fine <laughs> but he lets the you know he doesn't pay attention to Devin Rattray and, and he does make the speech
1: he makes the speech he makes it personal and that will be the end uh, when yeah. you first
0: hear to make the speech did you think ah he's a goner
1: what did mr competence just tell you <laughs> he said don't make the speech don't make it personal but he does and i mean how could you not make it personal if you're in his shoes again if i was in his shoes i would be just as inept and i would probably make it just as personal but yeah it's it's just tragic it's it's a great tragedy it's it is it's a shakespearean tragedy it's wonderful it starts very very small and then it just branches out and then you see that there's this whole chorus of characters who are also very invested in this story and we we could follow anyone really who's tied up in this and and still get a fantastic experience but i just love that we follow macon's character dwight because it's just it's fascinating he's such a good like you say he's bloody sad bloody eyes all the way through Just and um just fantastic film i can't stop gushing about it everyone go see it Mm -hmm. or stream it
0: (laughs) mini 14 gun show no papers it's carbine it just means it's short. Semi-auto. Fires every time you pull the trigger. 20 rounds. Very reliable. And I got extra ammo. You recognise it? Dun, 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 dun. It's A-Team Gun, man. From the show. So this is the second film from Jeremy Sonia, the director. Yes. Have you followed his career since? Because this was the film that, for both him and Macon Blair, it sort of got them back into filmmaking I think this was a last ditch attempt for them to you know they, they tried they dabbled they did various jobs on the making of feature uh, Jeremy Sonia says how he was a professional director of photography mm-hmm. for three years just like to earn some money but yeah. it, it paid off because he's got the sole director of photography credit mm-hmm. on blue ruin as well as <laughs> yeah. writing it and directing it and they went all in they mortgaged their house they yeah. borrowed money from friends and family they even kick-started it but it, and it's so nice to see that he is now consistently working
1: yeah it's great it, you're right it was their last ditch attempt at sort of making it big in the movie business because they'd been making stuff together since they were kids pretty much the mm. best friends from high school and like you said they made murder party and they I think they were hoping off the back of that it would be their, you know, their in into the industry. Didn't quite work out. So I think they just piled everything they had into Blue Ruin and it was like, this is gonna be our last blast and and then we'll just call it a day. But luckily it did really well. And it's I love what you said about his sort of cinematography experience because it really shows in this film that like he's the writer, director and cinematographer. And you know that thing where uh so good cinematography is you can pause a film at any point and the shot that you land on just looks good. Mm. That happens the entire way through Blue Ruin and I, it really shows. And it's just, it's a, what I, I haven't seen Green Room, mm-hmm. his follow-up with uh, Mr. Patrick Stewart. Sorry, yeah. Sir Patrick Stewart. Sir. <laughs> He's got that right. Oh, all the respect. I was just watching some people sort of, you know, talk about the films generally. And when you see side-by-side shots from Blue Ruin and Green Room, the, even the kind of colour tinting throughout the shots is really, really great. So Blue Ruin is generally quite blue mm. and then Green Room is generally quite green. So I'm looking forward to, I don't know, Purple Haze, next <laughs> film. Red Rum. Uh- <laughs> well, he, his
2: third
0: film has now come out onto Netflix. It's called Hold the Dark, and I was so gutted oh. it wasn't, you know, like Red Rum or something. Damn it! I just <laughs> really want him to like the the famous sort of Edgar Wright Free Cornetto trilogy, yes. or you know, the even more famous Free Colors trilogy oh. uh, from Krasowski. But he, but yeah, I want I want a third color film, Jeremy Sonnier. Mm. Any color will do. <laughs> <laughs> just <pick> one. <laughs> we talked about how this film was made, kind of on. You know, the character is on the fringe. He's mm. he's desperate. The filmmakers themselves are... This is their last-ditch <laughs> attempt. They've yes. gone all in. I mean... If this film didn't pay off, I, God knows what they'd be doing now. Yeah. Like They put their house up for this. Film. I know, man. But it, it did pay off, and it's kind of that really nice story. You sometimes get with films. Mm. They do the festival circuit, they get that big distribution deal, and then you're in <laughs> Hollywood, kid. And and it doesn't. We don't hear about it so often these days because more often than not, things go to Netflix and everybody sees it. But it was something you got in the like 70s, 80s, 90s with films premiering and Sundance, mm-hmm. and it's it, how Steven Soderbergh launched his career. Yeah. And and I think. Maybe with Jeremy Sonya it's a a similar thing. They rushed this film to get into the Cannes Film Festival Mm -hmm. and they they had to cut their uh, post-production down from two months to three weeks to hit the deadline. Um, (laughs) But they did it. And then not only that, it won the big prize in the director's fortnight, which was the the strand that it was submitted to. And it's like, it's not your first time film, but it's your, it's the first film that's getting a wide audience and getting into those prestige festivals. It's won the top prize. You made it against all odds. You edited it somehow <laughs> in three weeks. And then it did get that sort of distribution deal, which is, which is so nice to, to see.
1: No, it's, it's just a good, it's a great Hollywood success story. Mm. Underdogs succeeding in the face of adversity it's just another reason why this film is so is so good to watch because you've you've much like Dwight they had everything against them mm. <laughs> and it's one of those things where I think it's quite encouraging to up-and-coming filmmakers who might feel like oh I'm never gonna get my big break like mm. try hard but also write a very tight script <laughs>
0: you don't have to rush exactly. to get your film made you need to do it when it's right mm-hmm. and Blue Ruin feels so right <laughs> So, Blue Ruin is in the 90 Minutes or Less Yay! Film
2: Festival. Fantastic. You've made it. Ah, fantastic. Um,
0: which is fantastic. It's also the first 15, I believe, in the film festival, and definitely the first revenge thriller. Brilliant. So, lots of firsts. Lovely. So, how do you feel audiences will respond to this film now? You mentioned earlier that maybe it didn't have the biggest theatrical release mm. when it first first came out in, in sort of 2014.
1: Yeah, it was just bad timing. It was, the weather was too good. <laughs> So not many people got a chance to see it. Hopefully it's had a better reception on home entertainment release. Because
0: I think some of the films we have are sort of iconic Mm. status. Yes. And I think the challenge for a festival sometimes is if you are very sure of a film, Mm. but it doesn't have all of those great marketing hooks. Yeah. What's your angle for Blue Ruin?
1: Well, first, I mean, it had really great word of mouth the first time around, but I think just, you know, the climate wasn't working for it. So hopefully this would be a case of a lot of people who went, oh no, I heard great things about this. Oh good, I get... I get to see this again and also the the draw of getting to see this kind of film on the the big screen as well is also really good but then I was thinking what kind of gimmick am I going to do to get people get bums on seats in the screening and then I thought I might much like the film kind of does and kind of do things you won't expect I will also do that with the screening so I thought (laughs) I thought I would go for a family fun day Sunday screening vibe.
0: Oh, wow! <laughs> so you're thinking of like an early, um, like matinee type time. I'm thinking
1: like you know themed 3D sunglasses, <laughs> face painting, but um, more in terms of like prosthetics. And uh, an open bar, but it's just rubbing alcohol. <laughs> um, <laughs> we've got a shooting range. You get to take away uh, like free knives and crossbows for everyone. A little sewing kits and scalpels if you want one. <laughs> Cosplay <laughs> encourage people to come along. I also thought maybe making a drive-in screening so just have loads of cars lined up with bullet holes in them.
0: Very good. Yes. <laughs> so okay. You can watch the film outside on the and screen. And maybe you sleep in the car afterwards. You can know, have
1: a little you know, have a little sleepover afterwards as well. Obviously we'll get guests. Uh, so get you know Jeremy Sonnier and and Macon Blair along but also Jan Brady herself, Eve Plum, even though she's in the film for all of about thirty seconds. Yes, and and Mr. Competence. whom I mean, this is this is purely a booking for me, so I can meet Buzz McAllister. <laughs> but um, I think yeah, he's he's definitely a draw for people from our generation. Certainly. So yeah, I think just make the screening a lot of fun, give a lot of freebies away, make it kind of weirdly darkly comic, <laughs> like the film is, and hopefully that will get thumbs on things. <laughs> I think
0: that would be. I mean, the film didn't really have that when it first came out because it was doing the very prestigious festival yes. run. People weren't doing. Those fund screenings. No, so maybe now we've had a bit of time. Yeah, we've all thought about what they did, <laughs> and we we can have that fund, and it's like a whole day's worth of activity. Exactly, and also you need to sort of you know decompress afterwards. Yeah, um, and I was thinking maybe. Maybe, Mm because there's that good scene where he shaves his beard off. Maybe there's like a groomer's. (gasps) So everybody stays in their seat or something. (laughs) And the seat's actually like a barber's chair. And then you get, you know, whatever you want done. You get your hair done, you get your beard trimmed. Oh, it's fantastic. But if Macon Blair's there, he could actually do it.
1: Oh, no, he could do it for you. Because
0: we know he's good. <laughs> we know he's great. That's
1: such a clean shave that he does so, on the show. I mean, very, it's so very good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> OK, well, that's probably got the most fun and interactive screening in the yes. festival for probably the darkest and goriest yeah. film in the festival.
1: I'm, I'm glad I delivered there. <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, thank you so much for that and <laughs> for, for programming this uh, delightful film.
1: Ah,
2: you're uh, very it really
0: is a musty film, and I, I think you're right. It's just great to get it back on a big screen. Yeah. And people who maybe missed it first time around because they were playing in the park, and come to this special screening and experience this full day of activities that you've created.
1: Yay! I'm so glad.
0: Uh, fantastic. All right, Becky. Where can people hear more from you on on the internet?
1: So I, like you mentioned earlier, I do a podcast called And Then What, which is um, a storytelling podcast where myself and my co-host Amy Jones. We just talk about stories, essentially things that we've found, things that we've heard, things that we've written. Every fortnight, we basically just try and make each other laugh or cry. It's usually really dark, messed up folk tales, silly voices. And some kind of reference to the cat messing up our recording. And then, if there are any budding screenwriters out there who would like a second pair of eyes on their script, then just you can find me on Twitter at rabbit in a hat, nice. and just give me a shout, and I'll be very happy to look over your work.
0: That's very kind of you. Yeah. If they say blue ruin, do they get a, a secret handshake?
1: <laughs> yeah, they get a little discount on already very reasonable prices.
0: Oh, <laughs> ah, very good. <laughs> well, thank you very much for spending time with us this morning, but thank to you. talk about blue ruin, and thank you, listeners, for. Our Listening to us waffle on about this very violent film. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please give us a little rating. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, love those. Do subscribe, do tell your friends. Uh, we're still in the early days of the pod, so all word of mouth or social media noise is very welcome. Speaking of social media, you can follow us on Twitter at 90 Min and it's the same on Instagram. We've done some good stories today. You won't have seen them because we're recording this in the past, but there will be good stories when when you look at this also the show was produced by me sam clements and louise owen who sat in the corner our music is by martin Ostwick, the show was edited by luke smith and our artwork is by the very talented sam gilby we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new film
2: goodbye